you grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19 through 34. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for giving us your word, for revealing yourself to us in your word, for telling us the truth of your word, for Jesus being the word. Father, through your Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. Glorify yourself in your church for your name's sake. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? This is the question that was asked of John the Baptist. And judging by the actions of the Baptist, and even the reactions of those around him because of his actions, it was a valid question. Jesus was introduced by the Baptist into a culture that was confused, self-righteous, and self-determined. No, I'm not talking about our culture. The grace of God, even to the Jews, had been deluded and demeaned to such an extent that the religious leaders had become self-righteous judges. Saying, who could be part of the church and who couldn't? They were the ones that said what could happen within the church and what couldn't. John the Baptist came proclaiming a message that spoke 
past their rules and regulations. Not because he was smarter than they were, and not because he was more spiritual than they were. His message was truth because it was the message given him by God. This is why the message of John the Baptist begins with him being sent from God in verse 6 and ends with him proclaiming the message given him by God, verse 33. It is God who is working behind the scenes in the ministry of John and making himself known. He is the main actor and stage director with a story and plot that is driven forward by his actions and identity. We, like John the Baptist, would not know him if it were not for the one who sent me, told me. This is not a human religion. It is God who acts without being asked or even wanted, and he receives nothing in return except that which was already his. This is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The early church knew that they were no different than these Jewish religious leaders, no different than the pagan religious leaders. They were just as prone to creating traditions and even becoming just as self-righteous and self-determined. The Christian church is founded on the word of the person of Jesus Christ and is so self-aware of its corporate testimony of sin that it is intentionally self-critical regarding its practices, or at least it was. The church is only different in Christ because of Christ, which is why for so many years the regulative principle of worship has been the lock place on worship in order to keep the church orthodox. This is the gospel of the church. The church narrates the gospel to the world, but God in God alone is still the main character and primary actor within the world. And the primary subject matter of the church is this God. The church lives its life in and for Christ and serves as an ambassador to the world for him, proclaiming the coming judgment of God and his amazing grace through his Son. But the church, just like John the Baptist, is utterly and entirely expendable. We live to serve the God who sent us, who saved us, who purchased us. He doesn't need us any more than he needed John the Baptist. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? His answer to the question, who are you, was his testimony. His answer to who he was was found in the person of Jesus Christ. This was his identity, how he saw himself, why he did the things that he did, this was his testimony. What would your answer be? Who are you? Why do you live the way that you do? What is your testimony? Is it about how bad you were? How awful the things that you did were? And then God stepped in? Or is your testimony like that of John? Well, Let's answer the question, what is a testimony? 
Legally, testimony is a form of evidence that is obtained from a witness who makes a solemn statement or declaration of fact. It's the same within Christianity. Your testimony is powerful, only powerful, because it's a story about moving from death to life. Giving your personal testimony is a way to share the gospel by explaining your personal salvation experience. But based on the testimony of John, testimonies need to be long on the one behind the salvation and short on the experience of it. We have examples of testimonies in the Bible, such as a demoniac set free by Jesus who wanted to become one of his disciples. Jesus told him in Luke 8:39, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We also have the account of those saints that have come through the tribulation in Revelation. We are told they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death, Revelation 12:11. And we even have the testimony of the Apostle John given to us in 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. How do our testimonies stack up alongside of these? Have we been sold a bill of goods concerning what our testimonies are supposed to be about? Who our testimony is supposed to be about? We'll come back to that question. In verse 19, there's labels given John, priest, Levites, and even Jews. But weren't they all Jews? And if they were, then why the distinction? The Jews are mentioned 71 times in the Gospel of John, and half of those times they are in opposition to Jesus. But the fact is, Jesus is a Jew. The Apostle John is a Jew. Paul is a Jew. And the Baptist? Yep, he's a Jew. Unsaved people, though, masquerading under the guise of Christianity, have used the book of John to create hatred for the Jewish people. They point to the murder of Christ and their defiance of him as an acceptable reason to hate a whole people group and even persecute them. They are wrong, dead wrong. John the Baptist, John the Apostle, neither one was an anti-Semite. John was an anti-humanite. His beef was not with the Jewish people. They are no better and no worse than any other people group. The term Jew is given to us in the book of John as a separator. And that's it. 
In Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us that there's great advantage in being a Jew. He says, what then is the advantage of being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. But that doesn't let them off the hook or make them any better than anyone else. For he tells us in verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is one time that I'm very willing to agree with anyone that all means all. This is the point that I'm trying to make. Even though though the Apostle John calls the religious leaders Jews in opposition to Jesus, that doesn't mean that none of them were the elect of God, as shown through Nicodemus and even the testimony in the book of Acts. We are all Jews, or at least we all were, since none of us were born regenerate. The point of John writing in this manner was to point out that all people are sinners, not just the leaders of the nation, ours or any other. We are all in opposition to the Messiah until he changes this fact. Let's talk for a moment about John the Baptist. We would be wrong in thinking that the person of John the Baptist didn't garner great attention in his day. He really was a star. He did garner great attention. But it wasn't just his his strange fashion sense or his even stranger diet. There had been a drought of the word of God in the land of Israel for over 400 years since the prophet Malachi. That isn't to say then, or that isn't to say though, that there hadn't been plenty of false prophets and false messiahs um, as told to us in the book of Acts chapter 5 verse 36. But the ministry of John the Baptist was different. There was a steadiness to it. There was a solid God-glorifying, human-defacing truth in it. He was different from the false prophets and the false messiahs because his message was not his message. It was from God. The truth of his message stirred the public to such a degree that there was more written about John the Baptist by secular historians in the first century than about Jesus himself. His message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, was simple yet stunning. John told the Jewish people that the game was up. There was a crisis moment at hand. The promised Messiah was not coming at some distant future time. He was at the door now and would be entering soon. And when he came, he would be coming for the purpose of judgment. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat in his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke 3.17 Therefore, repent. Submit yourself to ritual cleansing of baptism. It's important for us to understand what baptism was at this time. What What it wasn't was for the Jewish people they saw themselves as already clean. Those that were unclean that needed to be baptized were those cursed, wretched Gentiles 
that were smart enough to see the error of their ways and had pledged to become a proselyte Jew. But the message of John the Baptist was not directed to Gentiles. It was to the Jews. You are unclean. You are unready for the Messiah. Now repent and be baptized in recognition of your uncleanliness. This is part of the reason why John was asked, Who are you? Because his message was for Israel. And yet he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't part of the priestly line. He wasn't a Sadducee or a Pharisee. And he hadn't been sent by them. How dare he? Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 20 is kind of messed up in how it's put together. In the original Greek, it's even worse. The reason is that the Baptist was using the strongest language possible to deny that he was the Christ. He was so shocked by the implications, or even that these men might think that he was the Christ, that he responded with three negatives in a row. What? What? No! Really? Not even close. You think that? No! We are never told the first question that they asked John, but from his answer, we can determine that they were asking him if he was the Messiah. Now, in the first century, about that time, there was lots of talk about the coming Messiah and lots of preconceived ideas of what he would be like and what he would do. The one thought that held the most prominence, though, was that he, was, he would be a warrior king who would expel the hated Romans and set up a sovereign nation, Israel, forever. This is why Jesus would never accept the title Messiah. He would not be their idea of what the Messiah was. Verse 21, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was Elijah in Matthew 11, verse 14. Yet here, John denies that he is Elijah. What are we to make of this? Well, for one thing, John wasn't seeking titles nor notoriety. His dress, his diet, his lifestyle wasn't an act purposely put together to draw crowds or attention. He was a man on a mission, sent by God, and that was enough for him. These people were rightly looking for the prophet Elijah because Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The problem was that just like with the Christ, they were wrong in their understanding of Scripture. They were looking for a physical man, the actual Elijah, to come on the scene. John knew who he was. He knew that Elijah had not died, but had been taken up in a whirlwind. But he also knew that he was not the reincarnation of this prophet. That's why he denied that he was Elijah. Well, are you the prophet? And he said, no. This question is rooted in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. John answers, 
John's answer to this question was given with a lot more emphasis than that of him being Elijah. The reason for this is because many people, including many of the religious leaders, saw the coming prophet as one and the same of the Messiah. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? The men that were questioning John were sent men. They may have had some authority, some status within the religious organization, but they had been sent by others to find out who and what this man was. This is a defining moment for John. In this moment, out of the spotlight of the crowds, in a small setting of people, John tells us who he is, <clears throat> who he thought that he was. And more importantly, what he thought his life was about. This would have been a great opportunity for, for him to throw out the importance of his family lineage. Remember, his dad was from the priestly line. This would have been a great account or great time for him to give an account of his pious life that he had lived, how he had lived as a Nazarite, never defiling himself and always keeping himself pure. He could have said that he was the mastermind behind the new diet craze that was sweeping the nation. Or he could have said that he was a master of wilderness survival. He could have said that he was a prophet. What would you say to this question? Who would you say that you are? Do you even know who you are? I'm not asking if you know who what your name is or who your family is. But who are you? Why do you do what you do? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. His answer tells us lots about this man. He doesn't tell these men anything personal about himself. In fact, the only identity that he gives himself is that of a voice. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John knows who he is. He's clear about this. He doesn't stumble when they ask him who he is. He's not unclear about his identity either. John tells these men that he is of no importance. There is nothing in his family, in his lineage, that defines him. There is nothing even within himself that he wants to be identified by. And in fact, he states that this ministry, his ministry, is nothing more than a road-building ministry, preparing the way, preparing a people. In saying that he was just a voice that cries in a wilderness, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. That's the, this is the first time in, that Isaiah is mentioned in the book of John. There's a second time. Chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. Turn with me there. John 12, verses 38 through 41. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, 
Who has believed what we heard from us, and, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people should have been prepared. They should have known. God has sent the Baptist to prepare the way for the, uh, the, for the coming Messiah, and he did. Then the Messiah came, walked among them as a man, taught them, healed them, fed them, and very few believed him. And then verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now remember, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? It's therefore to tell you that whatever is stated after it is, is explained before it. Yes, God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, but he only gave them what they desired. He only did what they wanted. He gave them the desires of their hearts. Through the sin of self-exaltation, they had killed the heart that was alive to God, had blinded the eyes that could see him as wonderful. They could not believe because they did not want to believe. They were their own God, and God gave them just what they wanted and even deserved. He did the same thing to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. This is a truth that we should all be aware of, that we should all stop and think about. God will give us the desires of our hearts. That's why those that are cast into hell will remain there forever. Death changes no one. What you worship here, now, will be what you worship for all eternity. If you worship yourself or the things that bring you pleasure or even a false god, then for all eternity, this will be your god. And this is why hell is eternal. Back to our verses. 24 and 25. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Why verse 24? Well, because the apostle wanted us to know who was behind this delegation, who came to the Baptist, who had sent these men to inquire of him. And in fact, John had, said, had some choice words for those that sent these men. Matthew 3, 7-10 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, come, from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of, of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John did have an answer as to why he came, why he baptized, 
even though he wasn't the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John's mention of the sandal strap is a Jewish idiom. A disciple of any rabbi, and most rabbis had disciples, not only attended the lectures and teaching sessions of the rabbi, but he also attended to him. He lived with him, took care of his basic needs and desires. The disciple actually functioned as, you're not going to like this, a personal slave to the rabbi. But the one thing that differentiated between a slave and a disciple was that the disciple was never required to deal with the humiliating tasks of handling the rabbi's sandals. Only a slave would be made to do such a thing. So John was saying that he was not only not the coming Messiah, he wasn't even a disciple of the coming Messiah. He wasn't even worthy to be his slave. What he is telling this, this people, these folks, is what you need to do is stop focusing on me. I am nobody. Can't you hear what I keep on telling you? Focus on the coming Messiah. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now verse 28 is given to us to end the first section of the account of John the Baptist. In it, it tells us where John was physically at. And it's stated in a manner to make us understand that this is where John was always baptizing at. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <coughs> Excuse me. The Gospel of John begins with an echo of Eden taking us back to the very beginning of the creation of the universe and all that's around us. The Apostle John purposely did this. He desires us to see the majesty and wonder of God in his creative power and might in the first creation. He desires us to be amazed at the creation all around us. But he's also desiring us to be shocked at the amazing God that has now condescended to come to earth as a man to walk among men, and to redeem sinners for his Father. Just as Genesis begins with a seven-day period, so does the Gospel of John. Our verses today are the beginning of that seven-day period. A new creation, a new covenant. It's the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Verses 19 through 28 are the events that happen on the first day of this week. And in the first day of the, of the week, we don't see God, but we do see the effects of God. And now, day two is dawned. And with the dawn comes the King of Kings. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nowhere else in Scripture is the Messiah called the Lamb of God. What was John trying to get at by calling Jesus this? Was he referring to the Passover lamb? 
Probably not, since a goat could be used for the Passover. Exodus 12, verses 5 and 6 tells us, The animals you choose must be males that are a year old. They must not have any flaws. You may choose either a sheep or a goat. Was he referring to the sin offering of the Old Testament? Again, probably not, since it wasn't just a lamb that could be a sin offering. Leviticus 4, verses 1 through 35. What we can be sure of, though, is that the lamb that is spoken of in the book of Revelation is Christ. Revelation 12:11 states, And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. And then Revelation 21, verse 27, tells us of the lamb's book of life. While we can't be dogmatic about John wanting us to see Jesus in light of the Passover or the sin offering, we should be dogmatic in what he does say about this lamb. He takes away the sin of the world. In the beginning of John's gospel, he's already pointing us to the end of his gospel, pointing us to the cross. The reason for this is that the ministry of Jesus was not to make life better for us here on this planet. Jesus came as a sacrifice. He told his disciples that there is no greater love than this, that a man lay his life down for his friends. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus told us why he came as a Lamb of God. John, 3, or John 9, verse 39 says, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who don't see may see, and those who see may become blind. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John 12.27, Jesus said, For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John 17.4, Jesus prayed, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. John 18.37, Jesus answered, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then we have the testimony of Paul given to us in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he does take away the sin of the world. But his sacrifice didn't begin during the Passion Week. It didn't even begin during this week. It began in eternity past, when he, the Father and the Spirit, enacted the plan of redemption. But the sacrifice of the Lamb is sufficient to take away the sin of the world not just the nation Israel, all sin, every sin of every person. It is sufficient. That is why John the Baptist said that he was not worthy to even be the slave of this lamb. Why the apostle John wouldn't even pen his name to his gospel, preferring only to be known as a disciple that Jesus loved. His blood is sufficient. This is he of whom I said, 
After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 30 is just a reiteration of verse 15, with the exception that now the Baptist refers to Jesus as a man. Not just any man, but still a man. We must never try to separate the divine Jesus from the man Jesus. To do so would rob him of his majesty, his worth, his love, and his importance. We're also told here that John didn't see his baptism primarily to prepare people. He didn't see his baptism as primarily a means that people could be symbolically cleansed. He saw his ministry for the primary purpose for the revelation of the Messiah to Israel. Verses 32 to 34. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the second time that John bore witness to the Christ. The first was in verse 29 when he speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God mentioning two of the three persons of the Trinity. Here in these verses, the final, the final member of the Trinity is introduced to us, the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit has been maligned greatly over the past century and a half. He is either alluded to as an it, people thinking that the Spirit is something that we get like a shot or inoculation, or something that we develop through exercise. Or, there are those that go to the exact opposite extreme and elevate the spirit too high. If you've ever been to a Calvary Chapel service, you will more often than not notice that they don't have a cross in their building. It has been taken down and replaced with an emblem of a dove. Verse 32 is where they get this from. Is this wrong? Isn't the spirit an equal part in the Trinity? being completely God? Yes, he is. But let's look at what Jesus had to say about the role and function of the Spirit. He said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, not an it, but a he. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 16, verse 13 and 14. After the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit was sent to us with a purpose. The Holy Spirit doesn't come for his own fame, but to glorify Jesus. It isn't as if the Old Testament was the Father's time, the New Testament, the Son's time, and now the Holy Spirit gets his moment in the spotlight. The Holy Spirit comes to focus attention and direct worship to Christ. The Holy Spirit is not seeking worship. He is about directing our worship to Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we pray, we are told that the Holy Spirit steps in and helps us when we don't know how to pray, when words fail us. This is a great encouragement, because if you're anything like me, you need help praying. I need help praying very often. Jesus told us to pray to the Father in his name, John 14, 13. It is these prayers that are aided by and empowered through the Holy Spirit. Our prayers reflect the very nature of God. They are triune. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, empowered by the Spirit. But does this mean that we can't pray to Jesus? No. Does this mean that we can't pray to the Spirit? No. But the primary way that we should pray, and we should pray, is to the Father, in the name of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The unification of Jesus and the Spirit connects the promises of the Old Testament with the person and ministry of Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus is the Davidic king upon whom the Lord will pour out his spirit, Isaiah 11:1 through 9. He is the servant, the elect one, upon whom God will pour out his spirit, Isaiah 42:1. He is the prophet who announces, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Isaiah 61:1. The spirit is the sign that the promise age has arrived. The time that his people would have the Spirit poured out on them. This was what the Baptist was sent to Israel to reveal. This section of scripture began verse 19. And this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent Pharisees and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And it ends with, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This was the answer from the Baptist as to who he is. This was his testimony. His identity, much like the identity of John the Apostle, was all found in the Son of God. John the Baptist was satisfied in seeing and being able to bear witness to the Son of God. You and I are no different. This is the call on each one of us. The question remains though, is it enough for you? Is being in Christ enough? Really enough? So much so that all other ambitions, all other identities get swallowed up in Christ. Is Jesus the center of your testimony. He should be. He is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Dear saints, let us rethink our lives. Rethink 
the purposes of our life. Rethink who we are and even rethink our testimonies. Let us align them all with the truth of our redemption. May we also be satisfied that we have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray.